You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, get ready because in the next month or so, you are going to begin seeing some new things regarding our ministry on the internet. We have done a bit of rebranding, so to speak, and so all of our logos have now been upgraded, and we're going to be putting those in different places around the internet as we are uh, gearing up for ultimately what will be a complete rebrand of the organization as we move to Bride Ministries International. And uh, all of our logos for what we offer, which would be the podcast, Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall, the church, Bride Ministries Church, is now going to be what we call the Fireplace Church. The, the, the Fireplace Church is having a name change. Not that anything else is going to change, but the name is being changed. Why? Because it makes more sense to, uh, well, call the church the same name as the ministry. Less confusion, right? Uh, the Bride Ministries Institute. And so you're going to be seeing these uh, new logos that all are very synchronicitous showing up. And, and we're really excited about being able to, to, to take this next step with everything that we are doing. I want to remind everyone that listens to this podcast, we actually have a prayer ministry, Bride Ministries. And and we have folks, what they do is they receive emails from you and cover them in prayer. It, it's our version of a prayer line. But but since we don't have a, a building and a massive facility and, and a call center where we can take phone calls, what we do have is an email box. And so you go to website, bridemovement.com. Right now it's found at the bottom. And in, in, at the bottom of our homepage, you will see that there are some quick links. And one of them is called Prayer at Bride Movement or whatever. And, and if you click that quick link, it'll allow you to submit a prayer request to our prayer team. They love to pray. And we actually have uh, two prayer teams. So, so, so we have a group of folks go in there twice a week and pray for people that have needs. And so uh, I think that some of you don't even know we offer that at Bride Ministries, one, one of the many things that we are doing now. So there's a reminder for you. I really want to encourage you to take advantage of our Bride Ministries Institute. We now have nine courses up. I'm closing in on finishing the manual for the 10th course, which is going to be called something along the lines of Realms and the mysteries of reality or something like that. And so, you know, but but we're trying to help people activate in higher in higher levels in Christ. And so the, the Institute is our way to do that. Also, if you're just beginning to connect with this platform and you're scratching your head like, how do you guys end up where you are talking about these things? And, and where's the foundation? Well, we, we, we made the Institute to create the foundation so that as we continue to press the limits, those of you that are just beginning to catch up with us can go back, go to our Institute and get all the foundation from the Word of God that will help you to understand what we are trading on. And so take advantage of that Institute and uh, I want you also to know that donation statements will be going out this weekend from us. 
we've been uh, just making sure that all of our numbers and financials are straight and everything and uh, been reviewing 2018 with our accounting guy and getting everything squared away. So, so donation statements are going out this weekend. And I want to just remind some of you that because you've donated different ways and sometimes under different names and aliases, like, you know, your husband makes a donation or your wife makes a donation. You guys have different names, but the same address and you don't use the same account to donate from and different things. Like, you know, we have some uh, things in our system that I know are going to be duplicates, but but we don't have the staff or the manpower to necessarily go through all of our records and combine everything. So you may get multiple statements from us depending on how you have chosen to support us. It's not going to affect anything with your taxes or anything like that. You will simply get multiple statements for us if you have given to us in different ways and that's how it's been logged into our system. But we have done our best to account for every dime that has been contributed. Uh, through our internet platform. And so uh, if you get your statement and there are any errors at all, immediately write us info at bridemovement.com. Let us know and we will make the corrections immediately. Why? Because we value you. You guys that support us financially are helping to build something very, very special that is reaching need that is not being met by many others. so, so, and with that said, I want to remind you, you know, we do offer a scholarship program for survivors of satanic ritual abuse and government-sponsored mind control programs. We uh, have that available on our Find a Coach page at bridemovement.com. If, if you go to that page and you cannot afford to get the coaching or the counseling, depending on who you work with, that you need, well, we will underwrite it for you. Uh, that's part of why we raise funds and we are continually taking people off of our waiting list. We do have a waiting list. It's not as large as it used to be, but it is there. And so um, just understand that if you apply for a scholarship on our website, you may be waiting for a while, but we are making progress and helping people. And so um, for those of you that need that, just understand that is available. And for those of you that continue to support us, understand you're making a difference. With that said, I have one more thing to say, and then we're going to get into this week's message. Uh, I'm going to be in Australia, Adelaide, at the end of the month, February 28th, and then March 1st and 2nd. There's a banner on the front page on our website. We're calling it Manifest Breakthrough Conference. It's going to be at Field of Dreams in Adelaide, Australia. And if you click that banner, it'll take you right to the sign up where all the information is on their website. If you need any troubleshooting, make sure you contact them because they're handling everything, all the details, questions, so forth. Reach out to them. And uh, but just know that if you are in Australia and you've been following this podcast and connecting with us, and I'd love to meet you. And so would they. And so with that said, we're going to get to our program. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, we're back for another episode of Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall, and I'm very excited 
to have back with me Kay Tolman, who is the founder and president of Restoration Gateway Ministries in Portland, Oregon. And uh, they are actually moving over in their formats uh, for their school and everything else they're doing now. And I'm sure she'll give us some updates on that. But um, she has a Master of Christian Counseling degree and has been training ministers to effectively serve those in severe trauma recovery. She has authored a number of books, including this one that I have right here called Move with Compassion, which we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about today. And Kay, welcome back to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Thank you, Dan. It's wonderful to be here. I'm well, really enjoying getting to know you a little bit. You're just delightful. Well, you as well, Kay. I mean, this has been such a pleasure getting to know you. And our first podcast together was greatly appreciated. I mean, people were just so blessed by what you had to share and your spirit. And, um, you know, I want to begin here, as a lot of things are in transition for the work that God has commissioned you to, uh, how are you suggesting people connect with what you are doing now? Oh, great question. Well, our website hasn't changed. So we, uh, we felt like the Lord uh, wanted us to move out of the 501c3 structure in part because he uh, wanted me to feel more liberty to be able to speak out about different things and to be uh, a little more public. So, so we're transitioning. We're now uh, Revelation Gateway Ministries, but we have the same URL. So uh, www.rgmconnect.com is the way to reach us. Um, we're still in, kind of in process building uh, our website and, and getting it uh, where it needs to be. But yes, that's how you can reach us. Same email, same phone numbers. So uh, God has had his hand in this transition. We're very excited about where he's taking us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kay, your testimony is that you are an overcomer of satanic ritual abuse, and you shared a powerful, powerful testimony with us the first time you joined me on the podcast. And this time I want to get into some more of, well, your uh, testimony as a minister and things that God has birthed through you and all of that. And, and, and I do want to get into your book, Move with Compassion. And, and that book has a subtitle. It's a new wineskin for healing and deliverance. Now, I, I just want to begin the conversation here and have you just spend a little bit of time reminding us about some of the different approaches to deliverance and inner healing ministry that you witnessed and uh, which ones were most profitable? <laughs> Great question. Well, um, you know, my, my journey to recovery was a long one. And I, you know, there were times I would say to my, my Lord, I would say, Jesus, you know, why is this taking so long? And there were so many different people that God brought into my life. The, um, and I, I really think the purpose of it was to kind of discover what worked well, what didn't, you know, to try different methodologies and, uh, and I would say, you know, in this 30-year process, um, things have changed. God has brought a lot of fresh revelation, and he's accelerating the healing process today. In, uh, back in the day, uh, when I would go for deliverance, they would say things to me like, well, once 
all the demons are gone, you won't have any more altars. And I believe them. Um, <laughs> but, but that was really a misunderstanding because um, altars and demons are two di very different things. Altars are humanity, demons are not. And so um, that, you know, that was one of the things that happened in my recovery where it brought confusion to me because I thought, well, I can still, I know I still have parts. So does this mean I still have bazillions of demons going on? And of course that wasn't true. Um, some of the other things that happened, like I, I remember this uh, wonderful godly uh pastor and his wife that ministered to me and you know they would start off by saying um you know they would get a sense that there might be uh, a demon there and then they would bark and yell and you know give me your name and you know get out in the name of jesus and we would fight <laughs> this devil and this minister would fight and uh, I remember this going on for hours. I remember, you know, being on the floor. I remember just profusely sweating and going home going, I don't even know if they got it out. And, you know, I think deliverance today uh, doesn't have to be that way. And I, I think most ministers have grown beyond that old method. But, um, you know, one of the things that I've found, especially with ritual abuse, um, is you've got to get the legal ground. If you if you don't get the legal ground out, that devil is going to fight you tooth and nail and is going to have a legal right to stay. And so um, over the years, I witnessed a lot of abuses where um, there was min uh, ministers would take that big deliverance sword and shove it right into somebody's wounded heart. And one of the things the Lord really began to speak to me about is how he cares about the person. He cares about the humanity uh, in us. And that when he wanted me to write this book, his concern was for the emotional care of his people in the process of deliverance. And so... Um, the story of the book is actually that I, had, I was at a conference, an international conference for deliverance ministers, and there were hundreds of people there. And there was a very well-known prophet, prophetess speaking, and um, I completely respect her. She's wonderful. Um, but in her teaching for this whole team of ministers, she said she was kind of in a way kind of bragging about how um, she cast out this spirit of fear, just, you know, with that big sword, cast out that spirit of fear on that child. And I was very taken back because my thought was, well, what about the child? Because she was saying, well, I just told her to repent. Well, how old was the child in the altar in question? The child altar was two years old. A two-year-old child doesn't need to repent. Um, so I, I really started to realize, okay, wait a minute. Um, we're not as ministers recognizing the need of the child parts inside um, as we heal them. And so 
that was uh, where the idea came for the book. And the beautiful thing, God just downloaded it. I, I happened to have been in Texas and the whole book just like downloaded into my heart. Um, I went to the beach for four days and wrote like half the book. <laughs> it just poured right out. Um, and the whole premise of Moved with Compassion is that Jesus moved with compassion, that he was emotional. He cared that our emotional well-being is as important uh, as our spiritual well-being and, you know, other, other facets of who we are. So the new wineskin uh, noted in the subtitle is that um, if we address the legal ground, if we address the emotional care and we care for uh, that piece and bring the healing in, then it's very easy to get the demonic out. It just comes right out. You can actually whisper and say, okay, every devil that just lost legal ground, out you go. And it's a very peaceful process. Um, parts aren't traumatized by someone beating them on the head with a Bible and screaming at them. <laughs> you know? So uh, that's what the book is about. And, you know, in that story where that minister and his wife, you know, they were doing everything they could to get this devil. Um, what had happened was, as part of my story, is um, there had been a, um, a baby that was, was murdered in a ritual. And so, of course, there's big fat demons that come in on something like that. And the minister, this is how it could have been done. And it could have been done peacefully and beautifully, and we could have gotten lots of them out. And this is how I would minister today. I would say, let's love and care for the parts that had to be at this terrible place and do these terrible things. And let's just renounce and repent on behalf of every part of the heart for all participation there and for the sins that happened there. And we'll name those sins. And we bring that ritual, we bring that horrible event under the blood of Jesus. And now I just command every demon that came in on that event, every bit of it, out. And we could have gotten all those spirits, like taking a big net, just get them all out. And then the parts inside are loved and respected and honored and it's acknowledge this terrible thing that you were forced to do this terrible place where you were, but God has something better. And so bringing the parts into the glory presence of God and uh, letting him just transform them from the DNA level all the way out, then, then this horrific event can be resolved in minutes. The deliverance happens in instantly in that presence of Jesus and, and in that grace and glory filled place. And um, nobody gets hit on the head with the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I, I can tell you this, it is traumatizing enough for 
people to go through the pain that has led to their brokenness. Um, right. And Jesus is our source of healing. And so, 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 so you're right on, on, on all of these points, right? I, I mean, Jesus is moved with compassion. And, and one of the beautiful things that, you know, I've learned a lot from is when I have, you know, people that I'm working with describe what Jesus is doing on the inside of them. When, when we get them to be able to discern their inside, their heart, their inner worlds, whatever, and, and we'll be able to, able to connect them, get past the fake Jesus programming or whatever might be there and, and, and connect them with true Yeshua Mashiach, true shepherd, you know, and watch what he does. Uh, one of the things that he, I, I have yet to see him do is yell at one of the littles and scream at them and put his finger in their face. Like they, no one has ever described to me him doing that. And exactly. if I'm taking my notes from him, well, then at the end of the day, if, if I'm pulling, you know, people's broken parts to the surface and I'm talking to a two-year-old and my fingers in their face, frankly i'm not doing what he's doing yes exactly it might be what dan's doing but it's not what jesus is doing so 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 what is Kay? what is compassion hmm. you know when i when i think about compassion i think of it as um almost an out outward expression of god's love it's gentle, it's peaceful, it's kind, it's loving, um, but it doesn't enable, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't excuse the sin. I think sometimes we miss understanding that God's compassion is holy. It's really a holy place. Jesus was moved with compassion out of that love. Um, but love isn't sloppy, and love, um, love doesn't enable people in their sin. Um, love says, okay, this is what's going on. Um, there's grace here. There's a provision of grace for that, and let's move out of that. Let, let's move out of that dark place and come into the light of Jesus in that. And I, I think, um, I think that the church as a whole um, has kind of missed the emotional capacity and the emotional content of the Bible because Mm -hmm. the scripture when you really read about God in the scripture, he's got feelings, right? He, the temple, he goes in the temple. When Jesus was in the temple with the whip, he wasn't a happy camper. He was mad. He was like, I am not going to have this in my house. The zeal for his house. Uh, and so I believe that in, in his compassion, Um, He has a zeal and a passion for us, too. And so part of our challenge as ministers and as people recovering and growing in the Lord is to really step into the compassion of Christ. What is his compassion? How, How does that feel? How does it operate? How does it change my 
how does it change me? Body, soul, and spirit. How does that compassion? Because the word says love covers. Love covers a multitude of sins, right? So um, we need that love, but we also have to understand that that love is also a paradox of mercy and judgment. It's not either or. God is both. And so there's a holiness in that. And my challenge in the book is for ministers, especially, to step into that place or allow Jesus, maybe that's a better way to say it, to rise up in us that we can move in our emotional being because Christ was emotional. Heavenly Father is emotional. Um, and stop denying our emotions as a bad thing, but learn how to honor them um, because we were wired. We were wired to have emotions. Um, so I think as Christians, especially, we need to learn how to care for our emotions um, in a ministry setting and how we care for our emotions and other people's emotions as we interrelate in relationship. All right. Well, um, Stoicism really goes back to Greek culture. And in Greek culture, they believed that um, really they kind of worshiped the rational mind. Mm -hmm. When God created us, he created us right and left brain. So our right brain is where we experience emotions. It's where we experience God. It's where our, all of our spiritual giftings operate in right brain. Right brain is pictures, and um, right brain is music and feelings and colors. Right brain is this beautiful part of who we are. Left brain is where we analyze. It's logic. It's reason. It's math. It's language. So God created us with these two hemispheres of our being, right and left brain. Well, in Greek culture, it's very left brain. So they believed in Greek culture that feelings could get you off track, that you couldn't trust feelings that um, you had to stay with reason and logic. And so, unfortunately, much of our churchy culture today is very Greek. It's a very Greek mindset. And so for many years, the church has been told, um, you know, don't, don't cry, don't follow your emotions. I actually heard someone on the radio recently uh, a broadcaster say that her New Year's resolution was not to cry so much. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> because uh, God wired us with these two different, very different capacities, not to ignore one and, and elevate the other, uh, but to be able to operate in both simultaneously. And so what happens, for instance, with children, babies and children are very right-brained. Yeah. Uh, so they come in the world and they don't have language yet, but they're very intuitive and they love colors and they love music and they can feel mommy's feelings. Well, 
in our Western education system, by the time a child is five years old, we start indoctrinating them and taking them completely out of right brain and shoving them into left brain analysis, almost um, trying to shut down in some ways those creative capacities. Um, but we found that, in, that children learn really well when they have music, which teaches them to use right and left hand. Uh, so cultures that embrace both really thrive really well. Well, somehow in the church, we've got to come back to God created us with emotions. Um, that stoicism, which is um, actually out of... Um, the Hellenistic school of philosophy back in ancient Greece is not who we are today. This is a new wineskin. Today we get to embrace all of who God created us to be, and we get to embrace that God isn't just reason and logic, that God himself is, is emotional, he has feelings, he he grieves. You know, we know there's scriptures that talk about the Holy Spirit grieves or Jesus cried. Uh, and to embrace that, that, yeah, we have feelings and it's important to care for them. I don't know about you, but one of the biggest hurdles that I find that people have when it comes to encountering things in the spirit realm, even the voice of God, is this programming uh, that you're making it up that you're inventing or you're going into emotionalism. And so they lock themselves out of encounter mm -hmm. by embracing this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I notice when I, especially when I read the old Testament is that the Hebrew culture was actually extremely, uh, it, it, it was not British early 1900s at all. <laughs> okay. Right. It's very emotional. You know, yes. Uh, yeah. It, they, you know, they, they would like tear their garments. They would wail. They, they would cover their head with ashes and they would like, they would do this stuff. And it's just like, wow, these people were kind of intense. You know, <laughs> they were not so prim and proper and <laughs> You know, and um, and and I, and I, you know, when when I watch like worship services where the spirit of the Lord is really moving, people are actually like stepping into the spirit. People begin to dance and go into different movement and do, you know, it can get very even at our our last event. You know, we, we had some powerful worship times. We had the flags and we had staffs. If you, you know, some people are like. Why would anyone bring a staff into a worship setting? Isn't that just like a witch doctor stick, you know? And the people begin to move into accusation. It's like, dude, Aaron had a staff. Moses had a staff. David had a staff. Like, this, if you do a study on staffs in the Old Testament, it is profound revelation. It's like huge. And yes, you can use a staff to worship God. And it's just like, but our programming, it locks us out of all of these realms of encounter. I'm sorry, you hit a hot button with me, Kay. Um, no, I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay. So, so people have permission to feel. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the, 
one of the things um, where Christians get really bound up uh, also has to do with anger. Like a lot of Christians believe that it's a sin to feel anger or to be angry. And that's not what the Bible says. You know, if you look at the word wrath, you'll find Father God felt wrath. Um, <laughs> you look at Jesus in the temple, he was mad, right? So, um, you know, God wired us with the ability to be angry. And I think of it kind of like a car, an indicator light on the dashboard that says, hey, something's not right. There's a red light on the dashboard. That means there's a feeling of anger. Does that mean we spray our anger on other people? Absolutely not. Um, does that mean that we can be destructive and sin in our anger? No, the Bible doesn't tell us that. But it does say, have your, you know, be angry and sin not. So how do I do that? And that's particularly challenging for SRA survivors because there's a significant amount of anger in there. Um, and most of the people I've worked with, including myself, had so much anger, it actually had altars that their whole job was just to manage all the anger because I was supposed to be a good girl and not be angry. And so I had all these altars that had all this anger and I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to be a Christian and also manage my anger. So um, I, I think that not only as we recover and we heal and we acknowledge our feelings, because our feelings are part of who we are. So when we push, we, you know, we push them away, we stuff them, we don't want to feel them, we deny them, what, what we're really doing is denying a part of who we are. And so we're not going to be able to integrate those angry altars if we don't acknowledge their feelings and give them some tools for processing and releasing that. And again, it's right brain. So your emotions, the trauma memory, all of that's right brain. So if we stay in this left brain, everything's logical sequence, we're going to miss out on God. We're also going to miss out on the authenticity of how we feel. And so as we grow and we heal, I, you know, I tell people feelings aren't, it's not a salad bar. You don't just like pick and choose what feelings you want to have. So when you start denying feelings, you deny them all. And what happens is you end up missing out on joy. You end up missing out on exuberant praise and, you know, life, you lose out. So part of the job of those recovering is uh, learning how to safely and appropriately release those feelings to Jesus, work through them, and pretty soon as you start to unpack that giant chest of feelings, uh, pretty soon joy will come. Pretty soon other, you know, positive feelings. I, I think I was in my 40s before I ever felt real joy. I, I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, wow, <laughs> I've never felt it before because I had to unpack all that, you know, the anger and the depression and all of that, get it out of the way, the bitterness, all those feelings. So on this point, I want to bring up a scripture, which I assume gets a lot of people tripped up here. Proverbs twenty nine eleven, it says, a fool 
vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Now, I would say that this can be used as a pretty good case for Stoicism, uh, if taken out of context from the rest of the Council of the Word of God. I just want to let you talk about the balance here. Sure. And what's really going on. So, so I think I'll start by saying when people have been wounded, not just SRA survivors, but anybody that's been wounded, we don't have proper boundaries. And most parents aren't really good at teaching their children how to manage their feelings. And so then we end up as adults and we tend to either be black or white, either venting and emoting all over the place or holding everything back. But, but neither of those are wisdom, right? So here's the thing with emotions. When, when you've got a pressure cooker of emotions that have just been stacked upon stacked upon stacked, they're difficult to manage, especially anger. But my, I believe the wisdom of God is that in our quiet time with the Lord, we allow him to help us unpack those things. We bring the feelings to him. We process the feelings with him. We have the feelings. We process them with a safe minister or counselor. Um, we don't emote them all over the place. We have to start to have wisdom. It's not all or nothing. Um, it is appropriate. You know, there's a time and a place uh, for, for things like that. So I might feel angry and I might be able to say in a very calm voice, because I've been working through my anger, I can in a very calm voice say, well, I feel angry about that, but I'm going to respond in this situation this way. See, it's possible to feel and not emote. So there's, right, two different things. And just to acknowledge that when we have these feelings, it affects the people around us. And, you know, I can say for myself, uh, being so wounded, I tend to be very narcissistic, very self-centered. Well, you know, people just need to listen to me. You know, this is how I feel. Deal with it. Um, and, and God really corrected me on that. He was like, you can come to me with anything and everything, and I'm going to help you process it through. He's like, when you're with other people, I want you to be thinking about how they might feel about what you're saying, how that might, how they might react to that. And so, you know, it's more about being Christ-centered, processing in private, and then being Christ-centered and emoting that when we're with other people, especially in, you know, public areas. Sometimes SRA survivors will say to me things like, my church doesn't understand me. I try to tell them what happened to me. And I'll say, hey, hey, wait a minute, back up. We don't, uh, we don't unload all this emotional baggage that we have on people that, um, number one, might not understand, and, and number two, don't, might not know what to do with that information. So, you know, we have to be, really have to be wise. And um, you save the, for SRA survivors, it's critical to save the details about what's happened to private settings, 
private people, safe counselors, safe ministers, family members. Even my husband, I, you know, it was, it was very hard for him to ever hear my memories or things. And so that was part of how God trained me to learn um, when it's appropriate to say something, and certainly when it's not. And my husband's like, or my, my Lord was like, um, be careful, care about your husband's feelings. Uh, how might he feel to hear that this woman that he loves so much was hurt so badly? That's hard for him to hear. So then I started to be able to say, honey, I had a really bad memory and I just need you to hold me. I just need you to love me. But I don't need, I won't tell you the content of it. I'll, you know, keep that, keep that and share that in a, a place, more appropriate place. And the good thing about that too, is it was a way of honoring him, but also just giving him just enough information to love me back and to emotionally be able to be with me. So I think survivors make a mistake when they share too much information around people because it's difficult for people to be emotionally present with that. I mean, it was so, it was so difficult. It had to be dissociated the first time, right? So, so uh, if it's that heavy a content, uh, we really have to be wise about where we share it, where we share those feelings. Um, I'm so glad that you shared all of that, you know, and, and the next thing I wanted to get into was the balance as we move the conversation of emoting, having emotions, having permission slips to, you know, process our emotions from the one-on-one -on -one ministry setting to the community dynamic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, the Pride Ministries, we are really trying to create solution sets on every facet, right? One, we don't only minister to survivor needs, period. This, you know, this platform, we pull in people on the message of the expansion of God's kingdom. Part of that, for us at least, is a ministry to the brokenhearted and therefore survivors of every kind of thing. Well, now, um, we are in the process of building community on, a, on every facet. And that includes community for survivors and community with people that are not survivors and blending those communities. And we have very unique problem sets. And we've had our fair share of implosions, things that could have been done better had we had the wisdom we had afterwards and all of that. Um, but, you know, I know that you have put people in community as well within your ministry. You, you, you know, you've worked with people in teams. You have certainly trained ministers and counselors. So I just want to let you spend a little bit of time talking about the balance of this conversation, emotional processing, and, and take a little bit more time to talk about the difference between you know, taking care of things in a one-on-one -on -one versus the community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, God designed us to heal in relationship. He really did. He put us in relationship. It's the, the thing that's so important to him, right? That's why Christ came, was so that we could be restored to relationship with our Heavenly Father. So we need to learn to be really good at being relational. Well, it's hard when your heart's been broken and you, maybe you don't trust people or don't have good reason to trust. Um, it's not easy to 
reconnect socially and in the bigger picture. But I would say that um, when we're in community and God calls us to community, when he calls us to community, our thoughts have to be what's in the best interest of the corporate, what's in the best interest of the whole. Um, so in the best interest of the whole, I'm going to save the challenges and things that I'm struggling with for one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm going to come to the whole and I'm going to bring my health. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring my great attitude. I'm going to bring my love for God. I'm going to have my eyes on God, not on me, on God. So that um, I can contribute because that, that's also how we heal, right? Wow. So we contribute and we take the time to build relationships. We don't just rush in and throw all of our laundry on the table. We, we take the time to get to know each other and to savor that process. I, uh, I was sharing with some ministers in our academy the other night. Think of it like the trunk of a tree where it has rings. So when you come into community, the things in your life, um, you know, you kind of put a broader circle around the things that, that uh, you talk about. And you keep the more private things for the deeper rings in the circle. And when you think of the trunk of a tree. And you, you want to build trust. You don't just share everything. You build trust incrementally. People earn your trust incrementally incrementally. Um, so the good thing for people that have a broken heart is to be around other people that also have broken hearts and to be able to say, isn't God good? God is healing us. Together in community, we can love and support and encourage each other um, and, and find those. And, and we can say, Jesus, is this the appropriate time to talk about this? And he might say, no, honey, wait, let's, let's you and me talk about it first. And I know that one time, um, I'll just briefly share this. Uh, I was learning how to journal with the Lord. And uh, I had this assignment to ask the Lord a question in the morning. So I sat down with my assignment and I'm like, okay, Lord, I give, I, Lord, here's the question I'm supposed to ask you. And the Lord said, yes to the first question. Now, what I want to deal about is your marriage. And I was like, I mean, I heard him loud and clear. And I, and I said, okay, Lord. And he said, he calls me Katie. He said, Katie, when you get angry with your husband, he said, that's pride working through you. And you're directing it at him. And he said, I don't want you to do that anymore. He said, I want you to bring, when you're angry with your husband, I want you to bring it to me first. Resolve it with me. Share your feelings with me. And then... When you and I have reasoned it out, we've talked it through, you've processed the feelings, and go back to your husband and calmly share that with him. I got to tell you, that changed our marriage. Wow. It, that conversation with the Lord, um, you know, I learned it's not okay for me to just yell at him or um, the Lord really, really corrected me on it. 
So I learned I can take it to him first, and then I can come to my husband and be respectful and loving. Say, honey, this or that. I, I felt angry about that, um, but I love you and I forgive you. A remarkable difference in our marriage. And it, so that's just kind of a microcosm. That's the same thing we do in corporate, right? We get our feelings hurt. We get offended, whatever, in the corporate setting. Take it back to the Lord. Lord, I'm, I'm going to lay this at your feet. I want to share, uh, I'll just be brief, but there's a, a scripture out of the Passion Translation, uh, out of Psalm 5, that, um, oh, I just love this. I want to share this with you. This is Psalms 5, verse 3. At each and every sunrise, you will hear my voice as I prepare my sacrifice of prayer to you. Every morning, I lay out the pieces of my life on the altar and wait for your fire to fall on my heart. Mm. So what David is saying is every morning, he would get up with the Lord and he would open his heart and he would lay all the pieces of his heart on God's altar and God would come as that consuming fire mm. to, to take that, that living sacrifice and leave David purified in heart, walking in the fire of God, right? So that's what we can do with our emotions. Lay them on the altar of God and let his consuming fire come and minister to them. And we walk away just passionate and full of love. That is Let those offenses and things go. Let them be burned up in the fire. That is so good. You, you know, um, you really uh, are, are nailing a concept called oversharing. <laughs> yeah, and and another TMI, right? <laughs> Information. TMI. <laughs> Is like, would you, you know, would you like to share a cup of coffee and, and talk about just a couple of things for 20 minutes? And, you know, person shows up and says, let me tell you about the time when I was seven. And then, you know, and <laughs> the unsuspecting prey that, you know, not everyone, just because a person's a Christian does not mean they know what to do with certain types of information. Um, and just because a person is a survivor doesn't mean they understand your abuse, you know, at, at, as a sharer, like people have been through different things and different parts of people have been through different things and are in different places with it. Yes. And, um, so, you know, you, you bring up so many really good points and, and, and it has to be understood in the context of community, which is why I'm so glad you're highlighting it so, so well. He's articulating some of these things so, so well from a place of experience. Um, and I, I'm really looking forward to that book, Kay, <laughs> 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 that we were talking about before this. But, you know, um, I believe, I, I have a firm conviction in me that healthy community is possible even for the survivor of the most terrible abuse background. I, I, I do believe that that is available in Jesus. And mm -hmm. unlike some, I refuse to stop fighting for it, even though it can be a little bumpy. <laughs> um, I want to talk about ministry to the heavy heart. 
And mm. I, I was really, really excited about your chapter in your book on this subject because it just nails so many key points. Uh, it's very straightforward, just this is this and this is that. And it is um, it's really, really good. And so I, I want you to walk us through that. Um, mm-hmm. some of what you what you say on these things mm-hmm. when a person has a really heavy heart um, sometimes let's say it's a grief let's say it's a loss of a loved one um, a, a spouse or a child and they have a really heavy heart what if maybe an art in relationship is to be able to sit and be with someone with a heavy heart, mm-hmm. not trying to fix them, not trying to make it better, but being with, sitting with, abiding with. So how do we do that? Because sometimes we're just like, wow, I don't know what to say to that person or, um, you know, so I'm just not going to say anything. Well, Sometimes people feel really hurt in the church because what happens is, or let's say it's a cancer diagnosis. They go to the church and they they share with the body of Christ, oh, you know, I got a bad report from the doctor. And all of a sudden, everybody's pummeling them with advice. Oh, you should do this. You should call this person. You should read that book. You should da-da-da. This worked for me, blah-blah-blah. My cousin, da-da-da-da. None of that is emotionally healthy for the person that just reached out and said, I'm hurting, I got a bad report. None of that's helpful. So we have to be, again, um, you know, how would Christ respond to this? Well, Christ would say, I'm right here for you. I know you're hurting. I'm right here for you. One of the mistakes that we make as Christians is to throw out platitudes. Well, just have enough faith. Well, just read your Bible. Well, we can end up really hurting people by throwing that stuff out there. Um, Instead, maybe just taking somebody's hand and saying, I'm right here. Do you want to talk about it? How's that? How's that feeling? Um, um, You know, there's some ways to externalize that. Um, You know, if you'd like to do some artwork or journal, I'm right here. You want to cry. I'm right here, big shoulders, you can come cry. It's okay. So what the art of relationship with emotion is being able to be with the person, um, not have to fix and not have to say, but just to be with them, which is precisely what God does with us when we're hurting. Um, I remember this one time, I was really upset because um, I'd had this horrible memory and my husband wasn't in a place to hear it. He was just like, I I can't deal with that right now. And so I remember going to bed feeling really, really rejected. And I, I struggled with a lot of rejection in my life. And I remember reaching out to the Lord and I was just sobbing. And the Lord said, put your, put your head right here. So I just kind of imagined cuddling up with him with my head on his heart. And I could literally in the spirit hear his heartbeat. And he was like, I'm here for you. I'm just here. I'm here. Let me hold you. 
that's what that's what we need to be for ever other people when they have a heavy heart just like jesus was for me he didn't try and tell me well okay stop trying you know he none of that no advice none of that he was just present emotionally present and that's what we want to be when people have a heavy heart also in the book i talk about grief and one of the, the things that was really kind of an inspiration to me was learning about how in Hebrew culture, uh, when, when someone died, they had ways of acknowledging kind of the milestones in the grief process. Um, so, you know, they would hold Shiva. They, they, they had the first seven days, and then they had a 30 days, and then they had a year. And they had... Uh, times and seasons of just acknowledging grief. And I, and I remember as I read through that thinking, wow, people in Hebrew culture are given permission to feel. But that doesn't mean they go into the workplace sobbing. It means they uh, take some time off work and spend time with Jesus and with their family and have their feelings in that appropriate setting. Um, so I think that uh, as we grow and learn to accept and work through our own emotions, then we can be better containers uh, and better, better um, at being present with people in their feelings. We have to start with ourselves. So good. So good. Um, I can't help but acknowledge that in the spirit right now, there's a, there, there's a river flowing through this conversation that I'm picking up. And I'm just believing, Jesus, that you're going to activate that healing water to people that are listening to this conversation. Um, I want to talk a little bit about bitter root judgments because you bring that up in your book so good first of all okay define it and then tell us about how it impacts things yeah well bitter root judgments are amazing um i want to acknowledge i believe the original revelation of teaching on this came out of elisha house years ago i'm thinking maybe about 20 years ago or so um, but early in ministry, God really taught me on this, this topic. And what happens with bitter root judgments, this is how I see it. So I'll give you the right and left brain version. So the left brain version, um, I guess, would be like to say in the scripture where Romans 2, 2, where Paul says, you know, don't judge other people because what you're judging them for, you're doing yourself. So... <laughs> So, you know, the scripture, if you, you look at judgment, um, you know, there's plenty in there on that. So here's the thing about bitter root judgments. Um, the whole concept comes out of Hebrews, it's out of Hebrews 12. Um, and let's see, I probably should read that here for you. Um, so bitter root judgments, what happens with them is we actually are like playing God. So for example, I'll, I'll use my, my poor husband. <laughs> I'll use him as an example. So 
I had this bitter root judgment against my husband that said he was stubborn. So I, my, uh, in my judgment, he was stubborn. And the funny thing was, the more I judged him that way, the more judgmental he got. So it, <laughs> and, and the more stubborn he got. So here's what the scripture says in Hebrews 12, 14 and 15, the sad to be amplified. It says, strive to live in peace with everybody and pursue that consecration and holiness without which no one will ever see the Lord. Exercise foresight and be on the watch to look after one another to see that no one falls back from and fails to secure God's grace. In other words, release grace in relationship. In order that no root of resentment, rancor, bitterness, or hatred shoots forth and causes trouble and bitter torment. And by this, many become defiled. So here's what happened. I wouldn't get my way with my husband. And I would say, well, you're just being stubborn. So here's what bitter root judgments do. It's like putting glasses on and all of a sudden this becomes my filter and how I see this person. But rather than actually seeing him as God sees him, I'm seeing him out of my flesh and out of my judgment. And what happens is it's like a, the bitter root. It's like a vine. It now ties my judgment and his behavior, and it begins to replicate. It starts to, the more I judge, the more that binds, the more it happens over and over and over again. And so what's happened is I've now playing God. I've judged. This is your character. Well, really... Um, that's not appropriate at all because my husband is created by God. He's this is it's his my husband is God's creation, not mine. I have no place to judge it. So I learned that um, I could take a piece of paper and say, and I would do this with primary relationships, mom, dad, abusers, um, I, and I did this with my husband. And I would say, okay, Holy Spirit, will you show me the bitter root judgments? Because I don't want to be doing this anymore. And so I would write down, um, my husband is. And then I would just listen for all the words that came to my mind. He's stubborn, he's this, he's that. And I had this list. And so I went to the Lord with this list. And I said, Lord, I repent for judging my husband in this way. And I break that bitter root judgment at the sowing as though it was um, a seed that uh, was, it was like a seed that took root and became this thing that was replicating this plant that was having babies. So I broke it at the seed, at the root. I repented for the offense and I asked him to burn bad harvest crop because Bitterness and resentment does nothing but produce more of like kind, right? A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. Bitterness, judgments produce a harvest crop of bad fruit. So I asked him to do that. 
Then I broke the judgments, bound the demonic, cast it out. And it was amazing how much less stubborn my husband was. Oh, wow. But the, truth yeah. of the, the truth of the matter was I took those, those judgment glasses off and I mm -hmm. said, Lord, how do you see him? And this is what the Lord told me. He said, I see your husband as steadfast. He said, you're seeing him in the flesh in this way, the judgment. I'm seeing him in the spirit with the quality that I put in him of steadfastness. And then the Lord said to me, you needed a steadfast husband, Katie, <laughs> because, because he said, you would have dragged your children all over this country. You would have been flighty all over the place. But I wanted you and your family to be steadfast and rooted. And that's why I put that quality in your husband. I started to love and respect my husband for this quality that I could now see was the goodness of God in him and not my judgment. So our relationship just improved. So anytime people have trouble in relationship or they have the same issue keeps happening over and over again, like every time I have a new friend, they reject me. Mm. Um, I go back to bitter root judgments. If you see a pattern over and over, all men ever do, you can't trust men. They do that, you know, they'll always hurt you. Well, guess what? Mm. You'll see that pattern happen mm. over mm. and over. And bitter root judgments, uh, can flow through the generational lines too. So great grandma might've hated men and judged them and then grandma and mom. And then there you are in your marriage replicating the same bitter root judgments. So just like anything else, we can break it, take it back to the root, the seed, bring it under the blood and get all the demonic assignment. See what the demonic does is it becomes their legal right and assignment to make it happen because you played God and spoke it out of your mouth. So now we get to see people the way God intended us to see them. So good. Okay, Kay, I'm going to uh, veer the conversation on a slight left here, okay? We're talking okay. about compassionate deliverance. And that's what we've been talking about. <laughs> but there are a whole lot of things that people need deliverance from compassionately, uh, hopefully. Uh, one of them being Kabbalah tree programming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll just give this little bit, and then, and then I, I really want to get into this conversation with you, knowing that I actually haven't fully talked about with you everything you know about this, and I know you know a lot about it. And we've been sitting on some stuff that we've discovered, and I'm excited just to have this conversation for a, a little while. Okay. You know, but, but you know, just getting into this, uh, Kabbalah happens to be uh, a component of Jewish mysticism, essentially. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it, it's a branch, a, a way of studying Torah for some groups. And, and uh, there are... Uh, 
all kinds of things that relate to what has been derived from that system of study and called the Kabbalah tree. And so in, in any case, Kay, what is your experience with this? How have you run into it? And uh, what have you learned? Wow. Um, all right. So um, Kabbalah is, so okay, so Jewish mysticism, but it's really a perversion. In, in a way, it's an attempt to try and explain God. So we can't put God in a box. He doesn't fit in a box, right? <laughs> so any attempt to do that is going to be pervert, perverted. Um, Kabbalah is um, very deeply associated with Freemasonry, with Rosicrucianism, which is also tied in Freemasonry. And I find, especially with SRA survivors, especially if they have any Hebraic or Jewish roots, um, and ritual abuse was part of their experience, frequently they will have Kabbalah programming. What I've seen is, uh, for those, I actually have some slides if you want, I can, can share that with you. You can actually do that with a screen share and it'll come right up in the interview. People that are watching this on YouTube will see the slide. Um, feel free to do that. All right. All right. So let me, I'm gonna um, actually go, go back to an earlier slide here. All right. So uh, Kabbalah is a false tree of life. So this is a picture of uh, a Kabbalah tree. What I found is that uh, for survivors that have this programming, especially if it's trauma-based, is that this gets superimposed over the physical body and uh, there would be altars that would represent each of the circles or sifero. So you can see at the top there, um, the kether that represents the crown. Bina and Hokma are the ears. Gabura and Hesed, those are Hebrew for the shoulders. Tefereth is the heart. The Had and Netza are the hips. Is Yasad is the genitals and Malkut is the feet. Uh, and so, uh, and Dat is about this area right here in the body. So what I learned, I, I went to a seminar by Steve Ogilvie one time uh, on deprogramming for Kabbalah. And he believed that... Um, Many survivors, they start at the point of birth, and I believe this was true for me, uh, creating trauma that will therefore generate an altar for each of these areas of the body, each of three months up to two years of age. So they would start with um, the crown, uh, bonk on the head that would create severe trauma, and then um, the concept is if baby lives, then um, they're strong, they deserve to live if they live, and demonic is put in with that trauma, and there's like a crown. 
And so that crown kind of floats between the skull and the brain and control is the occult version of it is that it then controls the mind, will, and emotions uh, in the head. Next, the usually, so birth is the crown, three months would be the heart. So on through to debt. And debt is uh, really where it's a ball of Luciferian light, which is supposed to be the culmination of um, and the connecting point from all of the trauma areas uh, to this Luciferian light here. So when I do deprogramming for this, I, I break the program at each point in the body, uh, call forward the altars for healing, uh, and ha you'll have to remove the demonic associated with each of those areas. Uh, usually, especially trauma-based, it's very severe trauma. I've also found that these points intersect with chakras and become like a power grid system. So you have essentially Kabbalah, and it doesn't, like Kabbalah rituals, if that's going on with the group that did this, uh, they don't stop at two years of age, they continue. So you may find that you could have you know, 10 little girls that are Tepharet inside because every year they reinforced or reiterated the programming. Um, interesting on the ears, Bina and Hokma, the, um, what we find with a lot of survivors is they have trouble hearing God because the trauma's been done to the ears so that they only hear the false God that was brought in with the Kabbalah. So it can have a dramatic impact. And those altars, Bina and Hokma, will then try and hold back the truth of God or the wisdom, the true wisdom, the true revelation of God gets like pressed back by these altars. So they will only hear um, what the occult wants them to hear. The other point on that is, um, even though the eyes aren't mentioned here, uh, all survivors that I've worked with have had trauma with the eyes as well about seeing and hearing. So, um, so these, uh, these circles are called Sifarot, uh, I mean, depending on how you pronounce it. And then there are 22 lines and they're all in Hebrew those are supposed to be the paths of life that intersect the Sifero. And each of the Sifero are supposed to represent a characteristic or quality of God. So SRA survivors have these altars that correspond with the Sifero at each point in the body. So in breaking the programming, we want to break the ritual. We want to break the program that was performed at each point. Get the demonic out integrate the parts, but we also need to release the healing of God and then to shut down, essentially, this is like a power grid in the body. We want to shut, shut down that power grid. This is kind of another picture of it. Um, I don't know how clear that's coming through, but kind of an explanation of these things. 
Now for SRA survivors, let's talk about the feet. A lot of SRA survivors you know, really don't like anyone to touch their feet or their feet hurt. Um, there's a lot of programming that happens with the feet. So it might not just be the Malkut or Kingdom, but like um, this little piggy went to market. So they will overlay, do you remember with the little pig, the toes? I remember. I remember. Yeah, and so they will overlay both the Kabbalah and other like nursery rhymes and programs on top of that. And then so here's the chakras in the body. And what, what happens is the Kabbalah lines up with the chakras and then the, the body becomes a temple. Um, and each point of the body has been dedicated to these demonic forces. So it's no wonder a lot of people have a lot of physical illness uh, where these parts of the body have been dedicated as distribution centers for um, demonic energy. And then here, I don't know if you can see this very well, but this is kind of where in occultism, they correlate the points of the body. Um, the left side is considered feminine. The right side is considered male. The center is considered neutral. And they correlate it with tarot and astrology, and they just mix and match a bunch of things in there. So, um, but that's just some um, of the information on that. And then um, what happens is the survivor becomes a psychic connection uh, and, and becomes like a, a human energy portal. And we, what we want to do, of course, is uh, clean that up. We don't want to be human power grids. We want to be uh, only connected to Christ. So the healing process, uh, of course, um, each of those things that I've just mentioned. But in that process, going back to the new wineskin, um, we have to be very careful because if it's trauma-based Kabbalah programming, man, those are death-defying death rituals where um, people almost died. Like a lot of times, Tefaret with the heart, people will report, oh my, I, it feels like there's an elephant on my chest. Well, they stop baby's heart. Baby turns blue. Uh, and then they resuscitate and say, oh, this false god saved your life. So um, we have to be particularly sensitive to the emotional uh, and trauma content of those memories. Those are big. Uh, and I guess the best way I can recommend doing that is have your survivor um, kind of picture putting the trauma memory on a DVD, supernaturally download it on a DVD and give it to Jesus so they don't have to walk through all that trauma. But acknowledge that the trauma is there, the memory, and give it to him. So, um, but I, I've, sometimes it'll take me two or three sessions to really carefully uh, get this broken, especially for older survivors 
but boy, we have seen tremendous physical healings, emotional healings. Um, you know, people start to emotionally grow up and mature. <laughs> Physically, they start getting healthier as we break this stuff. I also believe that there's a cosmic component to it as well. Um, I think that not only does a person become a human power grid with the chakras and the Kabbalah points, um, but then those get connected to second heaven and um, that needs to be shut down as well. Okay, that is so good and uh, succinct. You brought up so many really, really important points on this in the, the, the truth that, you know, Kabbalah programming is a real thing that a number of survivors are going to have to be delivered from without question. And what we found uh, is that w when you mentioned, you know, the cosmic thing, we ran into that in a big, big way. And this is something that I haven't ever really publicly shared before on this podcast. This is the first time that I'm even talking about this. But we ran into this cosmic thing. And, and, and I, I don't even know, it was probably almost a year from the time that I first began to run into it until I even had language for what we were dealing with. It's like a year. I'm like, I was calling it the template. And I didn't know what the template was. I was just like, what is this template? And how are they plugging people into this? What is its pattern? But I began to recognize something. And it showed up with different people at different times under different circumstances in different points. And I, I mean, I'm, it's, it's just such a bird's eye that it's just all I could do is scratch my head and just be like, I don't know what this is. And, and there were times where I would try to pray into certain things with people different ways and whatever and if it was the template it never worked it just didn't work i, I was getting zero breakthrough and I, and I know that you know how frustrating that can be as a minister because your heart's like i just want these people to be free jesus just free you have all authority in heaven and earth just do it and you're like pray this and pray that and what about this and then you just invent words like <laughs> what about this word <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> no. <laughs> ah. So I, I would run into the template and I would just be like, no, not again. And, um, you know, so we try some different things. So after a year goes by periodic, you know, maybe once a week or every three weeks or, you know, I'm just running into something like this. It clicked and we began to get the data and it's, and, and it basically worked out to that there's this cosmic tree that it seems to be plugged into Lucifer's iniquity. Like that's what it seems for, for what we ran into. It's like, mm -hmm. it's like Very Luciferian. Mm -hmm. his iniquity is what the tree plugs into in the heavens. And then we found that people were being plugged into different points in this cosmic tree. And so they would, it would work out to basically portals like doors. And when they walk into this realm, cause each point would open up like a realm, the, the, the arms would be like swinging rivers or uh, roads, but the, you know, it's like it could take different shapes and forms because it's multidimensional. And even mm -hmm. like, if you look at the top of the tree on the illustration, you can overlay that on a Metatron's cube, which is a sacred geometry. It's like this, that sacred geometry is the top of this so-called Kabbalah tree that they've come up with called a Jewish mysticism, which 
anyway, you know, but we would go in and, and we would find that we were like entering these doors and it's like, oh, there's all, you know, when we went into the crown, Kether or whatever, it's like, oh, there's all these world rulers in here. I, we know you from the news. We've seen you on like, like it's a, they're like all hanging out in there. And I remember one of the first days that we actually got someone set free from this thing. The world rulers were like in the spirit sitting there watching them leave. And they're like, how'd you get out of here? You know? And it was like, we, we got it. <laughs> and, you know, so, so there was like, the programming interface with the physical body and then we started running into this guy and um you know the different points for us would mean different things like uh the the um tight the tifret or tifret whatever seems to be like tifret like a bloodline convergence agenda mm. Mm. um which connects somehow into like a portal of death and some of these things i don't fully understand yet Kay. so i'm saying this um saying you know everyone listen to me with a grain of salt here we we don't fully understand everything but um we were able to articulate a prayer that i haven't released publicly yet that is how we've been getting people set free from the cosmic thing and um oh i'd love to see that Oh, well, I think after this podcast, I may just have to post it on our podcast or our, our, our website for people. But, but I will share it with you, Kay, without question. And, um, you know, all I know is that the devil, with all of his fancy tricks, still can't best Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Even if we're there it is. The process. Um, but Kay, I just so appreciate you. And um, thank you so much. But Shane, did you have any uh, follow-up thoughts or feedback or anything before? Oh, I, you know, I just, um, so grateful for the opportunity, you know, to share with you and your audience. And uh, what a joy, what great work you're doing. Um, no, I, I just, I know God is, um, I know he's ready to really release some keys that are just further going to accelerate healing, not just for SRA, but for this great harvest that is coming in. And so we get to be part of that. We get to be part of the solution. And, um, um, and so does the body of Christ. We all have a part to play in that. We all get to be part of the solution. We get to be um, Christ for other people too. And so it's an exciting time that we live in. Amen. So may Amen. the revelation and wisdom continue to flow from heaven for, um, for God's people. In Jesus' name. Folks, uh, we spent a majority of this interview talking about Move With Compassion. This is Kay's book. Um, her website is still RGM Connect. So be sure to check that out. And um, we just so appreciate you, Kay, and, and, and praise God for everything that you are doing on the front lines, you and your teams. So with that said, folks, we're done for this week. God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Be sure to subscribe to our channel, like our video, and share this with friends. 
This podcast is a production of Bride Ministries International. Visit our website at bridemovement.com to enjoy the Bride Ministries Church, the Bride Ministries Institute, free resources, and to support us financially.